this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track, but there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. It takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. Have you ever thought about buying a business, turning it around, selling it for more? Essentially, that's what my next guest, Carl Allen, does. He's done it dozens of times. I've had him focus in on one specific story for this episode where he talks about a motorsports engineering company he bought for pennies on the dollar, as he'll describe, and ultimately sold it three years later for a very handsome return. He talks a little bit about shares versus assets and how he got the acquirer to buy the shares in the company. He talks about how he built out a forecasting model, and that was one of the secrets to getting the buyer to spend more than they originally wanted to. He talks about what they did to really change the business to make it much more valuable, in particular going through a bit of a Pareto's Law analysis of the different products and services that he uh, that they were selling at the time. Uh, listen to the way he sources deals. Lots of really good nuggets there if you're interested in buying a business one day. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Carl Allen. Carl Allen, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you very much. All the way from Manchester, England. Correct. Where they have a very famous soccer team, although you call it football team. We do call it football. We have two very famous football. Well, that's right. Manchester City and Manchester United, if I'm getting that correct. Why is Manchester United like the most valuable sports franchise in the world? Because I think they've got the most fans that buy the most shirts and um, subscribe to all their other products and services. So uh, it's all about their fan base, I believe. I thought the Toronto Maple Leafs franchise, which is a hockey team in Toronto, was the most valuable, but it's actually second or third to Manchester United, I think. Last time I looked at it, maybe the numbers have changed. Correct. And I've actually seen the Toronto Maple Leafs live against the New York Rangers in Madison Square Garden back in 2010. My first ever hockey game. That's great. And nothing to do with Built to Sell Radio. So let's get back to the point. We're talking about building to sell. And in your case, you've done it a bunch. But I guess we're going to do, we're going to talk about one specific company, which was a motorsports engineering company. I know we can't talk about the name of the company, but can you talk a little bit about what the company did so we just have a bit of a sense? Yeah. So, so this was a precision engineering company based in the UK that essentially made some of the critical components for primarily performance motorcycles, but Mm. a little bit of performance motor cars as well. So components for the engine, components for the braking systems and, and those sorts of things. Got it. And and was this were these custom projects for so like Honda would hire them to do a specific project? Or I want like a new caliper for our high performance brake. So custom stuff. Uh, so yeah, custom stuff, but uh, a lot of general components. But whatever, whenever the custom products were designed, uh, you know, we weren't doing like one offs. It had to be for a 
you know, at least a three-year contract. Uh, we wouldn't okay. make a single component. Uh, we'd have to be making at least a thousand of them to, uh, you know, justify that as a viable product to go into the portfolio. Okay. And I'm trying to figure out the business model. Um, did you get any sort of tail to the... Re- like if you designed something, was it... Did, did, did the manufacturer, Ducati or Harley-Davidson, whoever it is, did, did they own the rights to the design or did you own the rights to the design and then you, know, you, you basically sold them the product? Yeah. So we would own the, uh, if we can call it IP. So we mm-hmm. own the rights to do the, to the actual design. It would be designed um, as, a, as a kind of joint venture between us and the customer. Um, they would then contract us to make a certain number. We'd have to carry a certain number of that in stock. And then they would basically call off those components, both for new builds, but then also for servicing as well. So parts of it would then go back through to the dealer network um, for the you know the servicing and maintenance of primarily motorcycles, but some um, some sports cars as well. How did you get into this business? So it's really interesting. A, a, a lot of it comes down to um, how I actually do deals. So so I'm a serial uh, business buyer uh, or business investor and seller, and part of my model is I'm targeting what I call distressed owners of good businesses. So as part of my deal origination um, methodology, I got a random call out of the blue from a guy called Jeff. That was his real name. And he called me up and he said, you know, I I hear you're in the market for a precision engineering business. Uh, I own a business. It was doing just under two million pounds of sales revenue at the time. So not a massive business. uh, And it was making about £100,000 of earnings. And the gentleman said to me, Jeff said, so I'm prepared to sell you my business. um, But I need you to transact this deal inside of 48 hours. Uh, I said, well, you know, why is that? I said, because normally it takes me about 100 days to buy a business, I need to do due diligence, Uh, I need to raise financing. Uh, I need to hire lawyers and and get all that stuff done, as you know. He said, look, I need to do a deal, and I need to do a deal within the next 48 hours because my wife has just been diagnosed with stage four terminal cancer. She's not going to survive more than about 90 days. And as much as I love my business, I don't want to close it down, but I don't want to be spending any more time in it. I need to leave immediately. So I literally put the phone down. I got in my car and I drove two hours to go and see Jeff. And literally within three hours, I bought the business. Now, the- wow, what a- <laughs> yeah, that's so fast- quite a story. The fastest deal I've ever done. And, you know, I've, I've, I've done over 300 deals in 26 years, a lot of them big deals because I grew up on Wall Street and doing corporate mergers and acquisitions. But the reason I wanted to talk about this deal is it's so unusual for a number of reasons. The first one is how I ended up doing this deal. The second one is how I made the business much more valuable. And then the third piece is how I ended up selling it. Well, so- let's, yeah, let's get into those individually. So that's, so the first one I, I really want to dig into is, is how did you do this deal so quickly? I mean, what did you end up paying for the business and yeah. how did you structure it? So, so I, I bought 75% of the business 
for a pound. So at the time, the business was worth, um, I would say, between 250 and 300,000 pounds. So so a a business in the UK that's doing about 100,000 pounds in profit, um, you'll be looking to sell that business for between two and a half and three times multiple. Obviously, for a larger business, your multiples can be higher. So so the guy wanted between 250 and 300,000 pounds for the business. However, because he wanted to do the deal so quickly, I had no time to do due diligence and I had no time to, I, I, to be fair, I, I could have bought it using all my own money, but that's not normally my model. So we agreed a deal that I would buy 75% of the business. There was about £100,000 of surplus cash in the business over and above the working capital that the business needed. So I allowed him to take that. Uh, then at least he didn't have any financial worries while he was caring for his wife. And I, I agreed to leave him with 25% of the business. So so we did that deal. I had to stay overnight because um, the following day we told the employees and you know I wanted to set around really doing my due diligence. It's one of the first ever times I've done my due diligence having bought a business. Uh, normally you do it before you buy so you know what you're getting into, especially Why? raising financing. You've got to what? do it. So why would he give up 75% of his business for a pound? What, help me understand that. So well, this is something that I found a lot over the last 10 years as I've been doing this. This was somebody that um, was not financially motivated when it came to selling his business. His business had been on the market for sale for about two years. Uh, the business was not systematized at all, and it was very kind of badly organized. We'll get into that in a minute. So he'd failed to secure any form of offer of any sort from a trade buyer, from a competitor. So his needle moved in his mind when he found out his wife was terminally ill. He wanted to spend as much time with her while she was still alive than actually being in his business 70 hours a week, um, you know, being the owner operator of that business. So for him at that moment in time, and I guess it was timing, Um, he wanted just to exit the business, but he wanted to leave it in a safe, trusted pair of hands. He didn't want uh, me to asset strip it. I had to, um, you know, we actually wrote the legal agreement between us on his laptop, and I had to promise that, you know, I wouldn't relocate the business, I wouldn't strip it down and run away with the money. You know, I had to, um, I had to take it forward. So that's the deal that we agreed. Um, and I'll, I'll talk you through what we did with the business in a minute. But what happened is about seven, eight weeks later, um, he called me back to say that his wife had sadly passed away. He dealt with all that and he wanted to come back uh, to help me grow the business. So I actually gave him back an additional 25%. So we were 50-50 partners in the business for the three years that we owned it. And then we sold it. We did the deal in 2013 and we sold it in 2016. Got it. Got it. So it was a three-year run for you. I want to get, what were the assets in the company? Uh, I, I guess the reason I'm asking this, Carl, is I'm, I'm wondering, you know, could, could the owner have simply brought in an auctioneer and, and sold the machinery and done better than, than 100000 that he was able to pull out in cash flow? Yeah, probably. Probably would have doubled his money. 
the net asset value of the balance sheet at the time was around 200,000. So there were assets in the business, namely inventory. There was some um, planting equipment, lots of CNC machines, although... C- CNC stands for? Um, C- CNC is just the, 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 the term for five and six axis machines that you use to actually manufacture the steel components. Got it. So it had some assets, some some a couple you know a couple hundred grand worth of worth of hard assets, but he wanted to see the business uh, continue on. Yeah, CNC stands for Computer Numerical Control. It's basically CAD CAM. Got it. Okay. Sign some design a component in a computer, and it basically talks to the machine to build to build it. You put in a block of steel or aluminium, and it basically does all the cuts and drills and whatever, and out pops the finished component. That's helpful. So, in terms of your own, pers- uh, you know, deal, I'm I'm curious to know when he came back after his wife had passed away, why did you, why were you willing to give him Jeff the twenty percent that you did? Yeah, so I took him from um, twenty five to fifty. Uh, the primary, the, there were two primary reasons for doing that. One is I really felt for the guy. You know, obviously I got a steal of a deal getting 75% of his business for zero. But also what what became painfully obvious in, in the kind of six to eight weeks while I was driving this business primarily with the employees that were in is it really needed his technical skill set. You know, he was so technically savvy. You know, he, he was 64 years of age. He'd, he'd owned the business um, for nearly 30 years. He knew every customer by name and he was just technically um, so strong in all the different areas of the business. And we, we really missed him. Uh, the other people inside of the business, you know, just weren't able to really step up, you know, to be the GM of the business. Because one of the things about me, John, is I'm not an owner operator. I'm an owner investor. So I'm, I'm like a little micro private equity guy. You know, I'm not the guy that's going in there programming computers, building components, talking to customers, you know, I, I'm I'm by businesses where I have a team that can do that. So, and if I was looking at that business in the normal way, and I was doing due diligence on that business, I probably wouldn't have bought it uh, because it lacked that major person in the business that was that was going to be an effective general manager to take it forward. So, I gave him the equity back for two reasons: one, because I needed him to come back in to help me. I was actually on the verge of hiring somebody to take over his previous role. But then also, I, it just felt more natural to me with him to be a 50-50 partner. And it really gave him the incentive to you know, help me take the business forward and effectively implement the strategic plan that I'd come up with during that six to eight week period. And that's what really moved the needle in terms of growing the business. We took it from two to three and a half million pounds, 3.6 million actually within the three years, but we took the profitability from 100 to 580. uh, And we we sold it for just under three million pounds. Fantastic, fantastic. So before we get into some of the things that you did to to achieve that sort of growth, I just want to ask you two quick questions as it relates to your the the, the front end piece of, of kind of sourcing this deal. You mentioned you had a a sourcing sort of methodology, a way that you find business owners who are willing to sell. Could you describe that? Yeah. So primarily, I'm doing three things. So I'm dealing with uh, the business broker network that I built 
but I will only look at a business broker deal if it's been listed for more than 12 months. Uh, what I find with business brokers, um, certainly with the size of deals that I'm doing, I'm really focusing on kind of the one to five million revenue businesses. And what you typically find in the UK and also in the States actually is when, if you look at a deal that's been recently listed by a broker, what I tend to find is that the, uh, the pricing is artificially inflated. I don't know whether that's because uh, they're trying to justify their upfront fees or whatever it is. But what I find is if I look at a broker deal that's at least 12 months old in terms of its listing, then I'm dealing with a kind of distressed seller in some form. Um, so that helps the negotiations and helps the process because I know they've been for sale for a while and there's nobody else kind of sniffing around trying to do that deal. The other methodology that I have is is networking. So I've built a you know humongous network over the past 26 years of all deal intermediaries. You know what I found is that you know most um, wannabe retirees, so baby boomers or most people that want to exit their business, before they actually go anywhere near listing with a broker or a, a boutique corporate finance firm, is they'll they'll tell three people. They'll 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 tell their CPA, they'll tell their lawyer, and they'll tell their bank or financier that's resident inside of the business. So I have a great network both in the UK and also in the US. A bit of Canada as well actually in Australia. So I'm constantly getting deal flow. So I probably get 50 to 60 deals per month sent to me. And you know, on average, I, I buy one business per quarter and I sell one business per quarter. So that's where I'm getting my deals from. And I'm targeting, as I mentioned before, um, distressed sellers of average to good businesses. So they're not the best businesses in the world, but they're certainly not in any sort of financial trouble. You know, I, I, they've got at least a year's worth of working capital um, on the balance sheet to be able to keep going forward. Got it. So my next question about Jeff was, how did you agree to his salary when he returned from his wife's death? What did you guys agree to as it relates to his sort of week-to-week salary? Yeah. So he was taking around £60,000 a year out of the business. So I, I don't know if, if, if you know how the tax rules work in the UK, but it's very, very tax efficient being a business owner in the UK. You, you can take a certain amount of money out you know, tax-free. And then it's not like being an employee where you're paying higher rates of tax. And, you know, we call it national insurance in the UK. But in uh, as a business owner, you can take um, money out as dividends and the tax is, is a lot lower. So obviously, being a 50-50 owner, we just shared the cash flow that we were prepared to distribute on a monthly basis. So I was basically just paying him what he was earning uh, previously. I understand. I understand. So tell us about what you did to move the needle. You mentioned the, the increased performance from 100K to 580 and a better multiple, by the way, from two and a half to, to five. So what did you do? So three things. And what's really interesting, and I see this a lot in different types of businesses. What One of the things that really hit me, and I figured this out, within the first 24 hours of being in the business, uh, was that this business manufactured 113 different components. And my, my sense was 
a big part of the USP, so a big part of what they stood for, is they would do anything for everybody. Um, the, the previous owner, Jeff, felt that it was their job to really serve the automotive industry and provide them with everything that they wanted to do. That's why the business wasn't very profitable. Uh, it was only doing, you know, the, the, the net margin was only 5%. And so when we did the analysis, I just did the basic 80-20 principle on the, on the revenues. And what we found was that 80% of the revenues and actually 90% of the profitability was coming from only 20% of that product catalog. So what we instantly did is we rationalized the types of components very, very quickly that we were producing. So we went down from 113 different components to only 18 components. Those eight- how, did you, how did you do that without dramatically reducing your revenue? Yeah, so we lost... Um, so we, we lost on a run rate about £400,000 of sales, but those components were not profitable because um, th- the way that CNC machinery works, you have to set them up and retool them to make different components. So because there were only six machines in the business, uh, we were able to keep them set up consistently producing the parts that were the bulk of our volume and the bulk of our revenues. So we went back to our customers and said, hey, you know, these are the only products that we're going to be continuing to do going forward. We obviously had an inventory of some parts that we'd made before, so we got rid of those. And then we focused the business just on those key 18 components. And what we found was you know, we were really able to focus. We were able to focus on our marketing. And that, that was the second problem with this business. The business did no marketing. It, all the business was repeat custom, and it was word of mouth referrals. So once we'd really focused on the specific components that we were going to make, we very quickly, you know, within 12 months, we became known as the best in class engineers for those different types of components. So we found it a lot easier to grow the business rather than trying to be everything to everybody. We focused on who our target customers were going to be, what the target components were going to be, and how we would sell and service those customers. So it took about a year to get the revenue back up to $2 million. But instead of us generating 100000 we were generating about £250,000 of profit. So in a year, we'd rationalized the product mix. We got the sales from the dip. We went from 2 to 1.6 back up to 2. But our profitability had gone from 100 to 250 because we were only selling and manufacturing our high-margin components. You mentioned marketing. One of the things that... I'm curious about is how you carved out some money for marketing because the the business wasn't really that profitable. Just a hundred thousand pounds when you bought it, you to your own admission dropped revenue and it got rid of a bunch of products. But I'm assuming there wasn't a lot of money left lying around for marketing. So what sorts of stuff did you do to market the business? It's really clever. We 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 spent literally a thousand pounds producing a bunch of new brochures, new marketing material. And then I hired a salesperson. So, so the, the, way, the way the business worked, we had an internal sales manager that was more the technical salesperson. So he would work more on the, uh, the specification of the components, the R&D process, and then 
you know, quoting and just managing those bits. What we didn't have was somebody that would just go knocking on doors and following up and getting meetings. So that's the person that we hired. They were paid a basic salary plus then a, a set amount for every lead that they generated and qualified. So we, we literally spent a thousand pounds on photography and doing brochures. Uh, we hired a new salesperson that was, uh, I think we were, we were paying him about £2,000 a month as a basic salary, and we, we, we got him a, a low-cost uh, lease car to be driving around. And his job was to basically just drum up the interest and build the exposure before wheeling in the technical salesperson to start uh, doing the design work, doing the quotations, and managing that contractual process. So it, it, it was very, very low cost. We just did something very, very simple. You know, we didn't go around trade shows. We didn't spend a fortune building a new website or doing all those different things. We just kept it really, really simple. We rationalized the portfolio. We got the resources in place. And then we just, we decided, you know, who were the 60 to 70 businesses that we wanted to call on? And we just hit them. You mentioned there were three things that you did. What was the third? So the third thing that we did, and th this is something that I always do, John, when I, when I buy a business. Before I buy a business, I determine what my exit strategy is going to be. So I'm like your classic private equity investor. If I'm investing X into a deal, you know, I want to know, am I going to get three to five X out? And if so, you know, how's the exit going to work? So one of the first things I did in this business was I determined from the customers that we had who was the likely buyer of this business. Because obviously when you sell a company, you can sell it to management, you can sell it to a, an investor, or you can sell it to a competitor, which, which we call a trade buyer over here in the UK. So when I looked at the business, I just felt strategically it would make perfect sense for one of our customers to buy this business. So in the three years that we owned the business, we treated one of our customers even more special than the rest. And they were the guys that ended up buying the, the business. Why did, you, why did you feel so confident that they were the right buyer? Because we were just so strategically important to what they did. Our why? Why? components that were going into their motorcycles. I always used to say to myself, you know, why don't these people do this themselves? If this is so important to what they do, um, why don't they do it themselves? And and at the time, and I actually had that conversation the first time I met with with the owners of this business. This was this 120 million pound a year. Um, I can't tell you the name, but let me let me very very household name. They they do a lot of the modifications and a lot of the enhancements to take basic motorcycles and automotive vehicles, you know, to the next level for performance uh, sports and performance activities. And and because all of our components, they they used to buy all eighteen of our components, and we were so critical to you know their own strategic plan. I just knew from the very first day that they'd be the perfect buyers. And I waited about um, 18 months before I started kind of sowing the seed that we'd be looking to sell this business um, at some point in time. And we would likely be selling it to 
um, you know, somebody like them. And if they were interested, um, it would be good to start the conversations early. It actually took a whole 12 months um, to get the deal done with them. Um, and it was a, a quite a tough negotiation, one of the hardest negotiations I've had in selling the business. Um, but the deal closed, I think it was um, September 2016, and we sold the business for just under £3 million. But our profitability then was was close to £600,000 a year. Got it. So j- just shy of five or roughly five times yeah. uh, earning your you know, EBITDA, it sounds like. So let's talk about that negotiation. So you started to sow the seeds. It sounds like you you proactively approached them and said that you're considering. And what was their reaction? So their first reaction was, well, who are you going to sell to? And, you know, are you still going to be able to supply us with what we need? And my answer to that was, well, I don't know. Um, I actually think it's extremely strategic for you to consider buying this business. that was a was that not a high risk conversation? Because clearly, a hundred and twenty million pound company, they could have basically, you know, written a check and set up their own CNC shop, presumably. Yeah, but that wasn't their model. So, so they weren't. Um, their model was not really in the design. Their model was more in the production and the fulfillment and the servicing. So we, we were very, very strategic to them as a supplier. So, and, and I'd built a fantastic relationship with their, their technical people. And I, I really just knew, every time I used to go to the business, I used to think, you know, the, the business is a perfect fit for these guys. Um, but, um, you know, they, and, and there were a couple of instances where, obviously when I first met them, you know, just little things that they would say, you know, it's, oh, you know, well, we didn't know this business was really for sale. You know, we maybe have looked at it and all these different things. So I, I, I just felt really comfortable having the conversation. Um, and, you know, within days, you know, they came back extremely interested in talking to us about it. You know, what I wasn't prepared for was was the really, really tough negotiation that we ended up having on price. Um, it was very, very tough because what, what I found, I, I found this a lot. In, in, in my time, especially with small deals, trade buyers, they they want to do two things. So the first thing they want to do is they only want to buy assets. They don't want to buy the shares. They don't want to buy the legal entity. And whilst this why, is- Why did you care? Because in the UK, it, it's really, really important because the tax situation, if you're, if you're selling shares in a business, you qualify- for something called entrepreneur's tax relief. So if you're selling shares in a business, you only pay 10% tax on your sell consideration. If you're selling assets, you pay 28%, plus then you've got to pay the 10% when you liquidate the company where the cash goes. So it's 38% tax paying 10% tax. So it's massively beneficial to a seller, uh, especially in the UK, to sell the shares, not the assets. And then also what they wanted to do is they were only valuing the business as a standalone entity. They weren't valuing the business as a strategic enabler to what they were doing. So their plan was to turn my business effectively into their R&D facility uh, and use the shop and the people and the machinery 
to design new components and then use their own much larger manufacturing footprint, both in the UK and in China, to do the mass manufacturing for the you know the global market. So the biggest struggle was convincing them of of our thoughts on valuation. They wanted to pay two and a half times. You know, we ended up getting just under five times for the business, but it, it, it took a long time to get them to see our way of thinking. Probably so had, the hardest negotiations I've actually been through. So they wanted to pay two and a half times. Yep. Did they offer that number up without you know you you saying that you wanted five for it? Or how did how did that first sort of who made the first move, I guess? Yeah, so they made the first move. So one of the other things that's very different between UK and US, so you know, if you go to BizBuySell.com in the States and you look at all of their businesses for sale, they'll tell you what the asking prices are. In the UK, that never happens, very, very rarely. So businesses that are for sale through business brokers or through corporate finance firms or whatever, um, they don't list the asking price. And I always think as a seller, it's, uh, it's a strategic own goal to tell a potential buyer you know, what your asking price is. You want them to come up with their own valuation. And then you know, the goal is to get several of those and you can negotiate them um, across each other to get the best deal. So they came back to me with their opening bid. And all they basically done is they looked at my earnings and they looked at my balance sheet and my business, and they just applied an industry standard multiple. So at that sort of level, even at five, eight to 600,000 pounds a year in profit, most businesses in the UK in, in the engineering sector, they're selling for you know two to three times earnings. So, uh, and that's pretty standard. But I pushed for the high multiple because I knew how strategically valuable this business would be for them and what their revenue and earnings would be incrementally in their own business if they owned my processes and they owned my business. And what was the reaction to that? Um, so initially, they completely disagreed with that. Um, and we, we went through lots and lots of different um, iterations. Um, and I, I, I think... Sometimes I think to myself, they would have always paid five times um, because I'd really done the job of selling the deal, you know, into them. You know, I had to go and meet with the CFO. I had to go and meet with the CEO. I actually had to pitch to their board at one stage. So I, I was like the investment banker selling my own business, um, you know, to really justify them strategically why it was such a good deal. How would you characterize their posture, their um, you know their their discussion, their their what's the word I'm looking for? Attitudes in those meetings were they combative and telling you, Carl, you don't know what you're talking about? Were they polite but firm? Like, how would you characterize them? Yeah, somewhere in between, I would say, uh, and different moods at different times. Um, you know, I'd say more combative in the early stages. But then as we went through, we were just fine-tuning different bits and pieces. Um, you know, it, it got a lot more cordial and it just became down to, you know, a financial engineering exercise. I, I remember at one stage, uh, the night before uh, a key meeting with them, you know, staying up till 3 a.m., uh, you know, building a forecast model for their business um, with, with my business inside of it and what that would mean for them in terms of how they could grow their own market share in, inside of, uh, of the automotive sport component industry. So I had to work really, really hard 
to justify that extra premium. But, um, you know, Jeff and I split nearly three million pounds. So it was definitely uh, it was definitely worth the uh, the extra time. When you first identified this company as a potential acquirer, how long after you had purchased the business from Jeff, what did you first identify these guys as a potential acquirer? So I, I identified them in my mind, I would say within 24 to 48 hours. Uh, that was distilled massively the first time I met them, which was a few weeks later. But it was about 18 months, almost two years before I actually floated the idea um, seriously. And what was Jeff's reaction when you first raised the issue of these guys being a potential acquirer? He completely agreed with me. And he actually so he completely agreed with me. And I said to him, well, why didn't you get your business broker to approach them? And he said, well, you know, that, that's a great question. There, there are some business brokers in the UK that will take on a business and they will really study it. They'll look into the bonnet and they'll really figure out you know, what the strategic value add is for this business. And then they will scour the market. They will call hundreds and hundreds of businesses and send them out teasers and generate lots and lots of demand. However, there are some business brokers, and this is a broker that Jeff had selected, who will basically create a one-page tertiary. They will list it on their website, and they will do very, very little else to market that deal. Uh, the average broker in the UK sells one in 20 businesses, uh, which is a terrible statistic, but the, you know, the really good guys, um, and I'm talking just brokers and boutique corporate finance firms, you know, they're probably selling three out of five or four out of five businesses. Sadly, he'd not picked one of those, um, businesses, but I, I think even so, even if we'd have, he'd have gone to, uh, you know, the potential buyer or the broker had, you know, back at that stage. I don't think the business was really set up at that point for them to acquire it anyway. Um, you know, they they weren't buyers of all those 113 components. They were really just buyers of those core 18. And, they, you know, they were our largest customer at the time as well. Um, and the business just wasn't efficient enough. It wasn't organized and systematized as well as I think they would have wanted to have seen to acquire it. So they wouldn't have bought it in its original state, in my opinion, but we'll never know. They were never approached. So the firm paid almost three million pounds. Did they buy the shares or the assets? Yes, they did. They bought the shares. And how did you convince them to to buy the shares? Because one of the other things you didn't raise, other than the tax implications of buying the shares, uh, is that they were then inheriting the legal obligations of the yes. company, which is one of the other reasons that oftentimes acquirers would prefer to buy assets uh, and, and owners would prefer that they buy shares. So how did you convince them to, to buy the shares? Yeah, we had to sign lots of warranties and indemnities. Jeff. Describe what those are for folks who might not know. Yeah, so so warranties and indemnities is you're 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 basically endorsing and verifying the business that you're selling. So an example would be you're warranting that you filed all your taxes on time. You're warranting that your financial accounts are a true and accurate record. You're warranting and indemnifying against um, potential future legislation. So. For example, if we had um, fired a so let, let let's say an employee would have left for sexual harassment reasons, for example, 
um, we would be warranting the buyer against that in case that person came back later after we'd sold the business and filed a you know lawsuit against the legal entity that had been acquired. So all those different sorts of things, um, which is all standard stuff. But we um, you know we signed up to you know several warranties and indemnities just to make sure that they were comfortable in in buying the shares. Great. What as you look back, I mean, this is this sounds like a fantastic deal. You buy seventy five percent of the business for a pound. Uh, ultimately, you owned half of it and uh, and got out at three million pounds. Um, what what do you think was the if you could distill it down to one quintessential kind of lesson? Is there is there one big lesson for you that you'll take to to other deals that you do from this one? Yeah, I would say. The, the big lesson in this, it, it, it's not the buying or the selling. The big lesson in this for me was just how quickly we optimized that business. Just to go in and be able to see very plainly that the business was all over the place. It was trying to be everything to everybody and really kind of distilling down, you know, what what should we be and what should we not be? And it, and it was all about focus. Um, so, you know, there are various methodologies and systems that I use when, when I'm optimizing a business that I buy. Um, but it's the, for me, it's the most important thing, you know, if, if, and this could apply to somebody that, that started a business, they've run it for 30 years and, you know, they want to get it ready for sale. You know, most businesses or most business owners that try to sell, they they struggle in my opinion because they're not selling a business they're selling the job they have you know in their own business the business won't work without them being inside of it um so that's one of the key things that i always do inside of a deal because as i mentioned before i'm not an owner operator you know i'm the owner investor so for me to buy it and then for me to sell it i've got to make sure that the business will function and operate successfully without me having to get involved in any of the day-to-day tactical aspects of the business. So that, that that's the big lesson learned for me with this deal. I could have spent months, even years pontificating on, you know, the best way to take the business forward, but it was plain as day for me that that's what we needed to do. We needed to do quickly. And it was a tough decision because, you know, we were giving away, you know, instantly, almost a quarter of our revenues. But I just knew that if we focused down on what we were really good at and where we were making most of our profit, um, some of the components we were actually making out of the 118 uh, would actually lose money because what the previous owner, uh, who ended up becoming my partner, what, what Jeff and his accountant were doing is not correctly allocating the right amount of, of labor costs that it would take to come in and change the tooling to do those those smaller batch of components. Selling less stuff to more people, love it. It's a it's a great lesson for sure. Carl, where, where's the best place for people to learn about you? Is there is there somewhere you want to point them if they're interested in sort of reaching out to you? Yeah, sure. So people can head over to um, ninjaacquisitions.com. They can learn all about uh, you know me, my business, what we actually do. Carl Allen, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.